You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Okay, hello and welcome to this ODI webinar. I'm Jonathan Tanner. I work in ODI's Digital Societies team. Uh, which is a focal point for ODI's work relating to digital technology. And we work with governments and citizens around the world to try and build or create successful digital societies. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing from our speakers today. I said good morning, but I'm aware that for plenty of people, it's either very early morning or late afternoon because we've got around 180 people signed up for the event today from nearly 40 countries. So it's going to be a genuinely global conversation. Um, and the thing which brings us all together, of course, is the response to COVID-19. And we are living through a once-in-a-lifetime event, which is genuinely global and its implications. And one of the themes you often find in conversations about technology is we get asked, were we heading for a utopia or are we heading for a dystopia at the hands of artificial intelligence? And my answer to that is often that um, the reality is often a bit good and a bit bad at the same time. But I think right now it feels a little bit more like a dystopia that we're in and that's got a lot of us thinking about the utopia that we want to create and while we're thinking about how the covid response can help us build successful digital societies and a better fairer world we know that technology is going to be a part of that and so what we wanted to do today was take a look at some of the ways that technology is already being used to help tackle covid19 and to try and protect citizens and who are dealing with lockdowns and implications for their income and livelihoods. And we talk about those technologies as constituting uh, a crass digital safety net. And there are a lot of technologies to choose from which are being used as part of the response. There's smartphones being used um, for location data, for contract tracing apps. AI is being used in diagnosis and prognosis of COVID-19 cases. All of us are using or many of us are using video technology for working from home or attending events like these. Chatbots are being used to tackle disinformation. Mobile money is being used to make emergency social protection payments. And even more worryingly, um, some examples of facial recognition and other surveillance-based technologies being used to double down on contact tracing um, apps. So like with all technologies, there are challenges and opportunities that come from an increased use or novel use of these technologies. And what we wanted to do today was bring together people working on the COVID response in different places and on different aspects of the response, because we recognize that different countries around the world are in different moments of how they deal with and respond to this virus. And we wanted to create an opportunity for people to share their early lessons. So rather than having a granular discussion of one specific aspect of the coronavirus response, we wanted to look at different aspects of the response in different places. And specifically, we're going to be taking a look at uh, applications to track and trace uh, potential and confirmed cases of COVID-19. What can be done through social media platforms to share public information messages and tackle disinformation and how we can use existing digital technologies to distribute social protection payments for citizens who are threatening who are threatened by a loss of income. So to help us do that, I'm really pleased to have with us uh, Calvin Chong. Calvin is the Director of International Affairs in the Ministry of Communication and Information in Singapore. We have Oscar Tapp Scotting. Oscar is Deputy Director for Security, International Security and Online Harms at the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport in, here in the UK. And Maureen Stickle 
who is Associate Director and Head of Zambia for ID Insight. So I will hand over to Calvin in a minute to get us started. But before I do, um, drawing on a thesis that, that collaboration and engagement are part of what makes online events and virtual get-togethers successful, I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that we're going to be running two polls today during today's event. Try and get a point of view from the audience about what they think are some of the priorities for the coronavirus response. So don't navigate off the page with which you're viewing this event. But uh, if you're in a browser, please take a look underneath the stream and you will see the first poll question appear um, for you to answer during everybody's initial contribution. If you're on a phone or using an app, this won't work for you. But if you're watching this event in a browser, take a quick look underneath the stream um, and you should see a Slido poll there, which will be asking you what you think is the biggest risk from using new technology in the COVID-19 response. Um, so hopefully you'll have a chance to answer that whilst listening to our speakers over the next half hour, and I'll check in and see what we've found in the results before we kick off the Q&A. Um, and so with no further ado, I'm really, really pleased to introduce Calvin Chong, who's going to talk to us about how the government of Singapore develops their Trace Together app, um, some of the things that they did in building that, and some of the lessons that they've learned from doing so. So over to you, Calvin. Great, thank you so much, Jonathan. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Calvin Chong. I'm from the Ministry of Communications and Information here in sunny Singapore. And uh, just a brief introduction. Uh, I cover strategic planning as well as international affairs for the ministry. And I'm just going to speak a bit about uh, our experience developing as well as implementing our contact tracing app. It's called Trace Together. I think when we first started developing the app, uh, the problem statement we're really trying to solve is how can technology augment or complement our existing contact tracing efforts? As you can imagine, it is a highly uh, intensive uh, process. It requires uh, the hospital to interview confirmed cases and map out over a two-week period each and every activity and each and every person they might have contact with uh, for an extended period of time. For us, it is if you're in contact with someone for longer than 30 minutes, uh, you're considered uh, someone who will need to contact for contact tracing purposes. And so the, problem, the statement we're trying to solve is, instead of having that manual process, is it possible to develop an app using Bluetooth technology so that users of the app uh, when in contact with each other, they will log a potential uh, time at which it took place, as well as a possible identifier or a, uh, a mobile phone number. And what this then does is, if and only if uh, you are a confirmed COVID case, what the contact tracers will do is seek your consent to upload that information to the MOH, our Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health will then decrypt the information stored in your phone to have a series of logs of when, when uh, the contact has taken place and that unique identifier for each mobile number, and then do the contact tracing from there. Uh, a few things to note. Uh, this is something that needs the consent of the user, uh, so it's entirely voluntary. Two, there's no location data that's captured at all. It's not GPS enabled 
there's no uh, location data that's stored either in the phone or uploaded or through the tel telecommunications companies. And, and third, it's because it's entirely voluntary, you can imagine that there's a huge effort that's needed for everyone to come on board and to download the app. So just to give a quick readout, uh, we have about 1 million downloads so far. Singapore's population is about 5.5 million. So we're barely 20% in. Uh, we launched the app uh, about three, four weeks ago. And so you can imagine that for the new cases that are coming in now, we are using the app to then do some kind of a mapping uh, to the activity map to see whether there's, there's a correlation there and to supplement whatever existing contact tracing efforts there are, uh, whether it can fill in potential gaps, whether the, the patient might have not caught or not recalled certain people they've come in contact with, and we're current, currently undergoing that process. So you can imagine that the efficacy of the app really then depends on one, how many people have really downloaded the app, but two, more importantly, have people really activated the app and have it online all the time in order for this to work. Because you can imagine if I switch off my phone, if I turn off the, the Bluetooth uh, uh, technology in my phone, then some of these things would actually affect the efficacy of the app. And the, I think it's safe to say that it's still early days, but I think there are a few positive developments and a few lessons we learned along the way. Uh, one is that what is the problem statement we're trying to solve, right? So technology can greatly help if it is, I think, integrated in that larger process. So I described uh, that the problem statement we're trying to solve is how do we augment or how do we complement the contact tracing effort. It is not exactly to replace, because you can imagine if, we, if our problem statement was set up to replace the entire contact tracing effort, then we would pretty much require everyone to have the app, everyone to, to, to somehow activate and have that mobile device with them all the time. I don't think we have gone to that extent which is why we have designed the, problem, the, the app and the problem statement around how do we complement existing efforts. It's with that clarity then that then you can start to evaluate the efficacy of, of, of the app, right? And, and as the situation develops, we might then have to ask certain questions like, do we be a bit more aggressive in rolling out the app? Do we ask more people to download? Do we even consider the, the, the possibility of making it compulsory? But I don't think we're at that stage yet. And there's a second point I want to make is that this can only happen if there's some investment on the part of government, on the part of institutions to have a certain engineering capability and to have a certain nimbleness to say, okay, this is a public health situation. This is something that affects public interest. I'm going to activate certain government resources in order to develop an app. I don't have the luxury of time to outsource it, to, to to a private vendor. I'm not going to project manage this over a six month basis. I literally need this in four weeks and six weeks. So you need to invest in the engineering capability beforehand. And that would greatly help in a situation like this, where we have an indigenous uh, engineering capability to come up with that app in that four to six weeks. And the third point I really want to make is that a lot of this is only done in partnership with industry and with the community. And the way we've gone about doing this is we reached out to companies to say, look, th this helps with your BCP, right? Your business continuity plan. If your employees have the app, 
and this is something developed by the government, uh, then you know, it, in, in that worst case scenario where you might have a suspect case, you can actually use that act to then activate your BCP. Of course, in conjunction with the health authorities, you, you can, you, we can reach out to the community to say, look, this is an act that you can use to protect your family, to protect your community. It's not just about the government because should anything happen to you or your closest family, you want to know and you want to help others around you in that contact tracing process. And something like this technology, I think will greatly help fill in particular gaps. And so that's really my three points, right? That it needs to be integrated, that you need to invest in technology and at the same time, uh, partnerships. So that's just a quick rundown and be glad to share uh, other experiences that we have in either implementing the app or also give a better sense of some other technology tools that we've been using in Singapore. And just a quick shout out that we do intend to make the Trace Together app open source and public. Uh, we will have an announcement in due course about when this will take place. And it's Singapore's hope, I guess, that as other countries and as other institutions get to take a look at the open source code, then that's one positive step that we can make to try and address this as a global community. People can stress test it, people can pick up flaws, people can even do a bug bounty on it to say, uh, and if it's actually deployed, they're actually cross-border interoperable kind of opportunities where we can say, how can we put some of this data together with the appropriate privacy controls, of course, should there be a suspect case on a cross-border basis? So these are some possibilities, and, and I think that is something that energizes us and is something that we think will greatly help in managing the, the COVID situation around the world. So I'll just take a pause there. Thank you. Thanks, Calvin. Um, on the issue of making the open source coding available, I'm conscious that for a lot of countries, the, the, um, the luxury almost of having in-house coding and programming and engineering capacity isn't available. Um, what would be your advice to countries that might look at that open source code and think this would be great if we can put it to use, but we're going to need some partners to help us get that in place? What would you advise to people thinking about striking the right kinds of um, public-private partnerships to get something like this working? Thanks very much, Jonathan. Um, I think one way to think about it is that's the beauty of making something open source, right? That uh, you can invite the community, you can invite academia, academia, you can invite even your local ICT companies to all take a look. Uh, and I think it, in quite an extreme scenario like COVID-19, where I think time is of the essence, right? That, 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 that there's an urgent need uh, for technological solutions to contact tracing to some extent, that I think that's where everyone needs to pour in. Uh, I do take the, the point that not all governments, of course, or institutions have some kind of indigenous engineering capability, but the beauty of it making, making it open source is that other communities can be activated. And, and that the more people scrutinize the code, critique the code, share with others, and make this again readily available to others, I, I think that we are certain crowding in effect, or at least that's what we hope. Uh, I mean, I'm not an engineer myself, but uh, I think the reason why we've taken some time to prepare the code is we just want to make sure that it is kosher to share, that we've done the necessary checks. We don't want to release a buggy code <laughs> to, to the rest of the world. And so I think, again, if everyone can pour in, 
uh, it doesn't need to be just the government doing it. And, and I think that's one way I, that we can try to address the issue. And just quickly, what's been the biggest, um, you said you've got about just under 20% uptake of the app. What do you think has been the biggest barrier to uptake? Is it, is it trust and people's concerns around their privacy? Is it the fact that it's Bluetooth functionality and not everybody uses that all day, every day? What's, what do you think have been the biggest sort of uh, barriers to uptake? I think it's a few things. Uh, one is awareness. Uh, of course, we have tried to run information campaigns. Uh, we have uh, different leaders talk about it. We have run, we have put out information on our websites and even pushed out through our messaging apps. Uh, but it, it's hard because there's always a, a certain initial that happens when you're trying to push a particular app to people. Uh, and because we don't make it compulsory, it's entirely up to the individual whether to download it or not. And I think that is actually the biggest barrier, uh, that because it's entirely voluntary, to be honest, that you need to constantly reinforce, constantly tell others, you rely, I mean, there are certain, there are certain ways in which we try to reach the unreached, right, or, or try and reach the underserved. So we've gone on to all four of our national languages. Uh, we've tried to make sure that uh, we use uh, different uh, delivery channels, you know, free-to-air TV, uh, our website, but increasingly, again, I mentioned closed messaging apps, uh, way, different ways at which people currently access information today. And I think uh, we just need to recognize that there are people that say, do not watch television, do not read broadsheets. They might be online, but actually they just might not. And so what we've done as well is that's a huge citizen engagement effort. That means that working with the people sectors, the communities, the grassroots leaders to really bring this down to the ground. Uh, we literally have ambassadors that, that go to certain public, well, before we had the lockdown in Singapore, of course, uh, the, to, to go down to public spaces, uh, to, to common uh, congregation areas to say, have you heard of this app? And, and that's really, I think, a large scale mobilization effort and it's really heartening to see that, that there are volunteers, there are people who, who think that, okay, this is a worthwhile effort. You know, besides telling people to wash their hands, to, to practice social distancing, you know, the app is just yet another way that we, we need to reach out. Uh, and I think we need, just need to constantly plug at it. And it's going to be an uphill task, I know. I mean, these things usually follow a curve. And so we are currently still uh, on that upward curve, hopefully, and, and we do hope to to see that adoption rates uh, increase. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Calvin. It's nice to hear about one curve that we're not trying to flatten at the moment. Um, I, uh, I want to hand over to Oscar in a moment. I'm really pleased to have Oscar with us today. Um, Oscar works on the UK government's approach to tackling disinformation. I think we all know that uh, news travels fast, especially at the moment, and fake news seems to travel even faster. So uh, Oscar is a busy man. And I do want to make one special request of everybody watching. Um, as we all know, these are slightly unusual times, and I want Oscar to speak freely uh, and be able to share his work with us. So if you could treat his comments as background information, which is to say if you're planning to share a public write-up from this event, or if you're a journalist who I suspect might currently be pulling a funny face, um, please get in touch with us after the event so that we can get you quotes from government ministers on these issues where that's appropriate. Um, Oscar, with that uh, introduction, uh, please do give us 
a download on tackling disinformation and uh, successful public information messaging around COVID. Thanks very much. And uh, I'm really pleased to be able to talk about this today, uh, as you say, uh, on background, so I can speak pretty freely because I know there's lots of practitioners out there uh, for whom I really want to be able to tell you sort of some of the detailed practical things uh, that we're doing and what we've found to work, um, because I think that's probably the most useful thing to do. Um, so I'm going to talk about three things, really. So firstly, a bit about how we do use social media platforms in the context of COVID-19 to get the right messaging out and some of the lessons we've been learning uh, in that space. Second, to talk about how we go about finding misinformation and disinformation uh, in this context. And then thirdly, what it is that we do with it uh, when it's then found and sort of those response options. Before I dive into that, I just wanted to very quickly set out a bit of how this fits into our overall approach. Because as you said at the beginning, this is clearly an unprecedented situation we find ourselves in. And it's really important and has been as we've been working through these issues that our response is consistent with our principles. That means that we continue to recognize the importance of freedom of expression and a free, open and secure internet. So when we've been looking at these solutions, we've been making sure that our approach is consistent with those, uh, those values and principles and also our wider policy with regards to digital technologies uh, and tackling online harms. And if anyone's interested in that, you can read the online harms white paper, which we uh, published last year on that subject. But so to get straight into the uh, the things that I think uh, are probably uh, most uh, relevant and important in terms of how we use uh, social media to get the right messaging out there. As Calvin said, clearly, uh, when we're talking about COVID-19 and getting the critical messaging out that people need to receive to understand how to behave, how to act uh, and how to respond to COVID-19, we need to be hitting all kinds of different channels. And that's uh, sort of classic uh, press, broadcast. Um, but also social media and uh, civic routes. The reason I'm talking particularly about social media is because, A, this is a digital uh, technology talk, uh, but also because I think there are some specific um, uh, ways in which that can be used to help uh, in this context that possibly uh, bear a little bit of discussion. So the first thing is that we've done quite a bit of work on what messaging works uh, in particularly digital context. So with a lot of the messaging that we've put out there, as uh, a lot of other um, countries will have done as well, we've done quite a lot of testing for what kinds of messages are most likely to be received, understood, and then taken forward into behavior change, which is really what we're talking about when we're worrying about messaging. And so a lot of that is about keeping the messages short and simple, not tasking people with lots of information at the time. So the messaging that we're putting out is usually very short, very focused on a specific, one specific action at a time that individuals need to take, and the reason being to save lives. And through all of the user testing that we've done uh, over many iterations, we found that to be the most effective way of communicating the core action that we need people to take. And I'm happy to talk more about some of that user testing and sort of the behavioral insights work behind that if people are interested later. But then how we get it out, social media platforms are obviously a really great tool for this. Their business model is based on serving people with, with advertising content and sort of other content. And they have a huge range of different tools depending on their platforms. As has been mentioned already, uh, WhatsApp chatbots, um, that's a, an API that's been used by the WHO, uh, that's now being used uh, by Public Health England uh, and others to um, provide a route by which people can have an interaction with a chatbot to find out uh, authoritative information about uh, coronavirus and also to test some of the things that they're worried about um, and that 
creates a two-way. One, we can gather more information about what people are worried about, but two, we can make sure that the authoritative message is being pushed out. Um, but then in addition to being able to use systems like that and obviously targeted advertising where we need to get targeted messages to different communities, these companies are also taking steps themselves to make sure that they're prioritizing authoritative sources uh, when it comes to coronavirus. So that includes a range of steps from messages pinned to the top of screens when users log in or are interacting to uh, making sure that authoritative sources are the most highly returned on searches relating to COVID-19. Um, and also includes things like making sure that there is uh, exciting content from some of their main uh, producers uh, so that it's celebrities and people that people listen to, voices that people want to hear giving these messages as well. This also includes in the UK messaging on how to recognize and deal with misinformation. It's something that we, we're being told people are worried about. And so we've developed, again, with user testing, specific messaging to help people understand how to respond to, uh, how to recognize and respond to misinformation. And we've crunched that down into the real core of what it, what it is the message that we want to get across, which is, if you're not sure, don't share it. Stop the spread of false information about coronavirus and help save lives. That short message to try and make sure that the one thing we really want people to do is to stop sharing messaging if they don't really trust it. Because so many times we're told that people see messages forwarded from friends uh, or posted that say, I don't really know if this is true or not, but, and that is how the cascade of misinformation often happens from people acting quite innocently uh, in best interests of their colleagues, friends and family, but continuing to share information where they don't understand the provenance and where they haven't uh, done any fact checking. And so we also have a share checklist, and you can look this up online, sharechecklist.gov.uk, which is a, a campaign that we ran last year, which we're now adapting to uh, coronavirus context, um, which is, again, steps people can take to understand whether information may or may not be, uh, be, be uh, authoritative and may or may not be misinformation, disinformation. So how do we find misinformation, disinformation within government? Now, we've got lots of good messaging out there. We still know that this stuff exists. And it's actually in quite a lot of ways quite easy to find. It's not so easy to understand. So clearly lots of this will come up. Uh, it quite often gets picked up in the media. The stuff that we're really worried about often is the, is the information that is reaching large audiences, which means it's quite easy to pick up through a lot of the usual media monitoring uh, and social media monitoring tools. But understanding it is quite difficult. So we've worked to bring in experts, teams across government, because it's not really uh, it's not really sort of what responsibilities people have that are most important, but what skills people have. Data scientists, communications experts, analysts. And so we've pulled together a team from across government, also drawing on external partners uh, like the tech companies, civil society, fact checkers, academia, to help us build the best possible understanding of what's going on, how misinformation is spreading, what kinds are getting most traction so that we're able to make sure that our responses are appropriate. One thing I would say is this is an evolving area. No one has the one methodology that is the best for finding out what misinformation is going to gain most traction, how uh, we should uh, be spotting it early. So drawing on a range of inputs gets the best possible picture. And what I would say is on the Internet, there is always going to be more information than we're able to monitor and get across, even with really good sort of uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence tools. So it's really important to focus on what really matters. And so we spent quite a lot of time working uh, within governments to make sure that we're focused on the right kinds of misinformation that we're most worried about, things that might affect public health outcomes, things that might affect 
security, things that might affect minority groups and vulnerable groups, because that allows you to refine your search terms so that you're really looking for the uh, most uh, high risk uh, types of misinformation so you can take the right response. So then, once you found it, what do we do with it? Um, now, obviously, the response you take has to be tailored to the misinformation and disinformation you are seeing. Uh, so I'll use an example when we're talking about this. You might be aware there was a conspiracy theory uh, circulating uh, over the weekend um, in the UK about linking 5G to coronavirus. Now, clearly, that is completely untrue, load of rubbish, um, and has no basis in science, but it gained traction. And so uh, there are three sort of categories of things that we uh, we think about in response. So one is counter messaging. Two is flagging to platforms because actually they run the systems that these things are on and quite often material is in breach of their terms and conditions. And three to share with government so that operational responses uh, can be tailored with an understanding of the types of misinformation that are out there that might shape what people's uh, actions look like. So in this context on counter messaging, we have a resist toolkit, um, which is a, a, a toolkit. It's a, a booklet for government comms officials. Again, you can find it online. If you search for the resist toolkit disinformation, uh, you'll find that, which helps government com communications specialists understand how to respond. Sometimes counter messaging can help. Sometimes it can harm by drawing further attention to a narrative that is problematic. In this case, we judged that the most effective thing would be to put uh, counter messaging out there, rebuttals that made very clear based on the science that there is no link between these two things. Uh, and we found that that counter messaging did get a significant amount of traction, much more, in fact, uh, in terms of reach uh, than the original uh, than the original conspiracy theories uh, had. The second is flagging to platforms. Now, a lot of this content uh, that was linking 5G to coronavirus is in breach of the platform's uh, terms and conditions. And so as we flagged it to them, individual pieces of content, they were taking it down in response, uh, in line with their terms and conditions. Not that we were requesting, that, not that we were requiring that they did, we don't have the power to do that, but where they identify the content is in breach of their terms and conditions, they will take it down in line with their policies. And clearly here, the idea that 5G causes coronavirus and therefore not contagion is a public health risk and therefore it is in breach of uh, most of the platform's terms and conditions. When you're doing this, my one key tip is to be specific. If you send URLs to their flagged, uh, through their uh, channels for flagging information, they're much quicker to respond than if you say, we're worried about X type of disinformation, misinformation, because they don't have necessarily, they won't necessarily be seeing the same things that we are uh, when they look for that. And then the final thing, sharing within government, letting people who are working on, in this case, telecoms, uh, who are working on uh, the uh, safety and security of the telecoms infrastructure was really important. When they knew that there was this disinformation circulating, they were able to uh, look at their operational response and make sure that it was proportionate uh, to the level of risk uh, based on this misinformation that was out there. Um, so in doing those three things in this context, we think that we've taken the right steps to mitigate uh, the risks around that particular instance of misinformation. And so I just want to wrap up by uh, by emphasizing that in this space, we really want to A, uh, work with all kinds of partners, uh, not just government. This is not a problem that is for just government to solve. It is for civil society, academia, um, uh, the tech companies, and everyone working in partnership, but particularly internationally. We all know that misinformation uh, and information can spread across borders very quickly on some of these platforms. 
And so making sure that we're working collaboratively uh, with uh, our friends and allies around the world to have a, the best possible understanding of how mis and disinformation techniques are used so we can protect against them more effectively and combat these misleading narratives about the coronavirus is really critical to making sure that the global public has the right information to protect themselves. And so I'm talking today because I want to share some of what we're learning, uh, but we want to continue to do that, uh, to share our assessment of what's going on and to engage uh, with the social media platforms because when they take steps to address this, they are obviously global platforms and that helps everyone. I'll leave it there. That's that was, um, that was a fascinating overview uh, to which I could ask many, many, many questions to follow up, but I'll uh, try and behave myself and just ask uh, a couple maybe. One is around the sophistication of what you see in terms of disinformation. So a lot of attention goes to the ability these days to create deep fake videos and kind of um, a, a prescribe audio to people who never said the words that are put into their mouth. Um, what is your assessment of how sophisticated disinformation is around the coronavirus? Is it that people are using new t new technologies, or is it you know, good old um, heard it on the grapevine type stuff? Uh, so there's there's a there's a, a nice bit of terminology uh, that I that sort of uh, you sometimes hear in, in discussions about the difference between deep fake and cheap fake. Now, clearly, deep fakes are something which in the long term have serious potential risks for the information environment. But in this context, it is certainly the cheap fakes that are uh, that are sort of more prevalent uh, and more pervasive and uh, and the thing that we are worrying most about. Now, what I would say is that that doesn't mean it's not necessarily uh, quite clever. A lot of it um, when we're talking about the sophistication of disinformation efforts, actually, the sophistication can come in the social engineering and the way in which the messages are spread rather than the technological sophistication. And so understanding how how some disinformation narratives draw on uh, true stories, legitimate sources, uh, and how they can be seeded on multiple platforms uh, before uh, before they sort of become a, a narrative that hits bigger platforms. Those are some of the things that we're we're seeing. So it's sophistication in technique, but not necessarily in technological sophistication that I think is sort of the most worrying on the disinformation side. But I would come back, a lot of what we're seeing here is not necessarily disinformation, that is intentionally disseminated falsehoods, but quite a lot of people sharing misinformation. That is sort of, you know, potentially conspiracy theories, things coming from sort of anti-vaccination communities that is genuinely shared with uh, with good intent to try and, you know, I've seen this, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I thought I'd pass it on. That isn't uh, a uh, someone sharing something intentionally badly bad, that will have a negative impact, but it is clearly something that we are worried about in this context because it can have negative health outcomes. And um Really quickly on the 5G conspiracy, one of the you you thought about thinking through counter information, um, and one of the things that I think people increasingly recognise about the way that algorithms work on social media is that um, often by trying to debunk something, you give it the prominence that then means it spreads further. Is that something that you think is is a worry? You obviously decided it wasn't on the basis of the 5G question. Um, so it is certainly something that, that you that you have to work through on case by case basis. In this instance, because the uh, the narrative was starting to gain traction in mainstream media sources, not that it was saying uh, it was 
uh, it was true, but identifying it as a narrative that was emerging. And it was also being picked up by some celebrities, uh, not, not necessarily UK based, but some celebrities. It meant that it was gaining a level of uh, visibility with mainstream that we felt it was the right thing to do to put out counter messaging to be absolutely clear that there was no basis to this uh, because otherwise it would have been out there in sort of more of the mainstream unchallenged. The space where we we might sort of err on the side not to intervene is when it is a very much a fringe conspiracy and therefore putting out an official government communication on it might just draw attention to something that is very much uh, on the fringes. And that is where some of that monitoring capability is really important to understand where in a potential sort of disinformation narrative life cycle, different narratives are in, in sort of their genesis and whether they might be likely to uh, become uh, more in the mainstream and therefore need uh, a rebuttal. I can imagine that's something that's often a fine judgment call. Um, and for everybody trying not to quote you on cheap fake versus deep fake, um, I think we can all use we can all use those uh, we can all use those headers to talk about disinformation in the future. Um, thank you very much, Oscar. I'm sure the chat room will be filling up with questions for you. Um, I want to hand over now to Maureen Stickle, who uh, is the head of ID Insights work in Zambia um, and works uh, through ID Insight and with ID Insight colleagues uh, with governments around the world on using digital technology. Um, I know, Maureen, you mentioned that it looked like rain uh, in Lusaka. Um, so hopefully your connection will stick with us. Um, and I'll hand over to you to, to give us an overview of some of the work that you've been doing. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you to the other panelists. Pleasure to be here presenting today. Hopefully my connection will stay stable enough. As Jonathan mentioned, I'm based in Lusaka, Zambia. Stable internet is always a challenge. Um, I'm an associate director here with ID Insight. I've been in Zambia for, the, for over three and a half years now. Um, I thought I'd just start off by giving a brief overview of ID Insight for those who are unfamiliar with our work. So ID Insight is a client service organization and we work with leaders, with policymakers, with decision makers, use data and evidence to combat poverty globally. Um, we try to work with policymakers sort of across spectrum of work that they might um, and spectrum of activities that they'll be engaging on, you know, anything from innovating and developing new policies to testing, evaluating, learning about what policies are actually working, how it's playing out on the ground, um, to advising on actions to take really drive towards change. Um, the way that we work with clients is really to combine tools from academia and bring that academic rigor, data collection and analysis and interpretation, but then with a responsiveness to client needs, work together to drive social impact. Um, so we were founded in 2012. We've since grown to an organization of more than 150 people. Uh, we work globally, so across three different continents and have nine different offices, our largest of which is in Delhi in India, which is 60 plus people. I lead the office here in Lusaka, which is just over 20. Um, so we work with a range of different clients, multilaterals, foundations, NGOs, uh, governments, as well as socially minded private sector businesses. Um, I'll focus though today on our work, particularly with our government partners. Um, 
So we work with a range of different governments. Uh, here in Zambia, we have a partnership with the Ministry of Community Development. We work with the Philippine, Philippines government, Malawi government, Indian government, Ghanaian and Moroccan uh, government as well. Uh, and, you know, within our government work, we're trying to really pivot our services and support to help work with our partners to support their response to COVID-19. You know, a large part of that effort has been working to quickly write policy briefs that synthesize existing evidence on key issues like the use of masks or what social distancing might mean in, in low resource or low income contexts. Um, all of those briefs are available on our website if they would be of interest to anyone in the audience. Um, in terms of, you know, more on the ground type work, I can sort of divide our assistance or our support into two main buckets. Uh, one side, we're working to help deliver assistance. And on the other side, working to monitor implementation or the situation on the ground. So I'll walk through two examples that tie into the theme of using technology for each of these um, broad buckets of work that I mentioned. The first is in Malawi. Uh, in Malawi, we work with uh, their social cash transfer program. Um, cash transfers are an essential tool to help vulnerable households overcome income shocks. And you can imagine how that's only more important right now in light of COVID-19 um, and the income shocks that'll result from uh, enforced quarantining or self-isolation or total lockdown in different countries. Um, what we're doing with our partners in Malawi is sort of thinking about how we can build on this existing social caste transfer infrastructure to make sure that the most vulnerable households are getting the support that they need without increasing their risk uh, to exposure or increasing the transmission of the virus. So some of the main ways we're working now um, implement or make changes is thinking about one, how to bundle um, different cash payments into one so that you know there's fewer touch points with beneficiaries. Uh, also thinking about you know what segments of the population don't currently receive cash transfers, but because they might be most impacted, you know, could we increase coverage to cover these households as well? And then in terms of technology, also working to understand how we can better use mobile money to make the transfer of these payments uh, to households so they don't have to leave their homes to receive the money. The second example I'll speak through is in India. So over the last couple of years, we've worked with uh, several ministries across the government in India to develop what we call our data on demand service. So data on demand is a remote data collection infrastructure um, where we have developed, you know, a mobile phone data collection network to survey rural households, but to do so in a nationally representative way. Um, for anyone who has tried to conduct household surveys in the field, uh, knows how expensive and painful they can be and just how long they can take to get the information you need. So uh, this data on demand service really tries to make it cheaper, you know, 10 times cheaper, 10 times faster without losing the quality of information that's being gathered. Um, 
you know, so what we're doing now in terms of using this technology is pivoting the use of it to answer questions related to COVID uh, response and policy making. Examples of surveys that we've either run or are planning to run with the government include uh, surveying related to public awareness of COVID-19, where people heard about various information, um, knowledge of prevention, uh, self-reported hand washing. Uh, we're also looking at ways to quickly measure, you know, financial or economic impacts on households, as well as thinking through how this tool can be used to follow up with households to receive government relief. So all of the governments that we work with are in more of the lower income, lower resource settings. Um, and I think across our portfolio of work, a few trends have really emerged, um, particularly with relation to the, the use of technology. Um, I think the overarching concept is technology is a tool, but it's not enough in and of itself, especially in these settings. Um, what matters even more is local context. Uh, so first, you know, you have to think about what are the existing resources on the ground. In Malawi, uh, mobile money, the incidence of mobile money is quite high. So sort of pivoting to using uh, technological transfer of money works well. In Zambia, we also work with the social cash transfer program. While mobile money exists, it's not highly used and sort of scattered across various networks. It wouldn't be the right answer here in Zambia. Um, you know, in some ways, the lowest tech solutions can actually be the most accessible, uh, particularly in low resource settings. You know, I'm thinking really about getting messaging out. Oscar, you were speaking about use of social media. In some areas, social media, people might only have intermittent access or no access at all. So to think about what, what might reach people um, in a more direct way, maybe that's radio. Uh, I think the other piece you have to think closely about is inequality in the data collection process. You know, in India, we have ground truth and, you know, really validated our existing infrastructure to know that we're still nationally representative and in the information we're collecting. In other countries where we're beginning to roll this out, we have to really think critically about what voices might be missing because they don't own a mobile phone or because, you know, it rained that day and there wasn't coverage from a certain area. Um, if voices are missing from the data that's being collected, could that be then exacerbating inequality in whatever measures are enacted? I think the last point, um, Jonathan, you alluded to in your opening, and that's the ethics of the, of the use of data being collected. Um, you know, I think we have to be conscious of the short and long run privacy risks associated with, uh, you know, the, just the huge influx of data generated by the use of any technological platform. Um, so we're really trying to work with our partners to think now about who has access, what kind of access, or how long will people have access to try and prevent any misuse or abuse of data moving forward. Um, so yeah, that gives you a brief snapshot of how we're working with governments. I think I'm just about at time. So I'll turn it to Jonathan if you have questions. Great, thanks, Maureen. 
Um, yeah, my first question actually is, is uh, with those governments and the governments that you work with, from what you've seen, what has been the, you had to single out uh, one of the most important steps governments can take right now to think through how they protect citizens whose lives, livelihoods are at risk. What would you think is the kind of most important starting point or that, that you've seen from government partners? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what's been hardest is that a lot of the emerging evidence or you know what's been written or what we've seen enacted in other countries have been for more middle or higher income countries. And then how can you take what was successful in other places and think about how to ground in you know these lower income, lower resource areas has been really challenging, um, particularly as it relates to social distancing. You know, I think uh, in most households in in a lot of middle and higher income countries, people can self quarantine or you can have lockdown for two weeks or or longer. Whereas you know here in Zambia, for example, the majority of the population doesn't have access to running water in their homes doesn't have access to cold food storage, so need to go out every day both to earn income to buy food, but also to access food because they don't have stores in their home. So I think, you know, really trying to think through how to ground um, these ideas around distancing or what we know is best practice to prevent the spread of the transmission and balance it against what's realistic locally has been hardest. Great. And um, in, in identifying the most vulnerable citizens, often we assume that the most the, the classically most vulnerable, poorest citizens are the ones who are most vulnerable in almost any circumstance. Is it the case with with your analysis that with COVID it is um, the poorest who are most vulnerable or are there different sections of the economy who are slightly uniquely exposed by this situation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think definitely it's different segments of the population are affected differently. I think, you know, the conversation here in Zambia is trying to think about what those segments of the population are. And maybe it's not a blanket approach applied to the country, but sort of a multi-pronged approach that's a sort of takes into account how different areas operate. You know, maybe in the most rural of areas where people don't really move around, business can continue as usual. Um, but, you know, within urban areas where there's busy markets or there's many bus drivers that have passengers on and off continuously throughout the day, you know, it's those, those lower income uh, members or those lower income households that you know, have to have sort of special consideration or special circumstance to think through how you mitigate risk for those households. So definitely different elements different segments of the population are affected differently and might require different approaches. Great. Um, it was interesting that you mentioned radio. I noticed uh, that, that there are some schools in West Africa now broadcasting uh, curriculum and syllabus across different part, different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. I think the program was called Rising on Air, being run out of rising academies. But the use of radio um, to deliver education is one interesting aspect that's come out um, of the response as well. So that's it for initial presentations. I'm going to take a moment to dip back into the poll and see uh, what our audience feels is the biggest risk from the use of technology in responding to COVID or the accelerated or increased use of technology 
in responding to the coronavirus. I'm going to try and work out how I do that. Um, bear with me one second. And I think by magic, the results should appear underneath the event box. Ah, oh, but they haven't. Okay, right, maybe we'll never know what people feel is the biggest risk from using new technology in the COVID response. The options were uh, loss of privacy or the risk of private data breaches, um, a growth in inequality or exacerbating the existing digital divide, threats to democracy and the quality of uh, democracy, or job losses through increased automation as companies realize um, how easy it is to change ways of working. Um, and I did say earlier I wouldn't put our panelists on the spot, um, but I wonder, uh, Calvin, what, what, do you, what do you think might be one of the bigger risks that comes out of novel uses of technology in the COVID response? Actually, I... I'm going to be quite contrarian on this. Um, I think that the, the greatest risk of using technology is that we don't fully exploit it to its maximum potential. Uh, from a government perspective, I, I, I think technology has a lot of potential to do good and, and for the public interest. Uh, I know the question is about talking about risks, uh, but I think one big risk is that as governments, as institutions, as companies all try to leverage technology for their own interests, be it, be it for profit or be it uh, to, to further certain public outcomes, that there are going to be some who, are fall, who will fall behind. I, I think that is a, a huge risk that companies that don't embrace digitalization uh, will have a certain competitive disadvantage actually. Uh, communities that don't leverage on technology might actually not be reached as more governments go into digital services. Uh, I, I think those are as much risks and that those are things that uh, we care about uh, as a government, uh, as institutions, because we, we want to look after the citizens and we want to make sure that we, we continue to protect the fabric of society and, and jobs, livelihoods, the, the robustness of the economy are quite important contributors to that. So that's my contrarian take. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question directly. It's a very, it a very welcome contrarian take. I am. Um, I'm actually. I'm receiving the results live. I think you might have. Most of the audience were probably able to see them straight away. Um, so it was almost neck and neck between uh, risks and, and loss of privacy and um, exacerbating inequality. So 41% went with loss of privacy. 38% on exacerbating inequality. 16% on threats to democracy. And nobody at this moment in time is especially concerned about job losses through automation, um, which might be a sign of how much the world has changed in a very short space of time. Um, so we're going to switch to taking questions from the audience. If you're in the audience and you want uh, to get your question in, please do give us your, your name, where you're asking a question from, um, and we'll try and put them to the panelists. I'm going to start off uh, with a question from Francis, who is a healthcare consultant here in the UK. And she's asking um, how best 
we think governments can balance investment in technologies and partnerships to get technology off the ground when also having to find financial resources to meet basic healthcare needs and strengthen healthcare systems which are already weak. I wonder if that's um, something that Maureen, you've seen partners have to weigh up in recent weeks while they're thinking through kind of what can they do that's new and the costs of that versus really trying to improve existing healthcare systems. Yeah, that's a good question. And and actually not one I've interviewed so much. You know, I think um, in most of the countries where where I have experience working with governments, you know, the, the, the conversation focuses so much more around, you know, like for example, here in Zambia, there's 20 ventilators or approximately 20 ventilators ventilators for the entire country. So, you know, even if there was a substantial investment in, in healthcare resources, it still would be insufficient given the amount of funds available. So I think the conversation is much more focused on the, the community transmission and, and trying to limit um, trans, like person-to-person -person contact much more so than, than some of the trade-offs of Healthcare investment, if I'm being honest. But um, yeah, I'm curious what other panelists might say. Uh, Calvin, is that is that the trade-offs on spending something? Oh, I, I saw that Jonathan just plopped off the, the screen back. there. But I'm just assuming everyone's still on. Okay. Uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, some of this goes back to, I think, my, my, my initial point about investment, right? And, and that, uh, granted that, uh, I think governments and institutions, they, they do need to balance between social spending, like health, you know, and of course, you know, education, housing, things like that, as well as immediate and long-term needs. And, and I think uh, something like the COVID-19 situation really just pushes a lot of these trade-offs in quite sharp focus that uh, if you don't have that initial investments uh, in, in that, I mean, the, the theme of this uh, meeting is actually digital safety nets, right? And, and in a way, uh, we do need to set up the, so the digital safety net early on during a peacetime scenario in order to cope with something that's a, a, a surge demand like uh, COVID-19. And I can't emphasize that enough. And, and so I don't think they're easy answers, but if that investment was not made early on, uh, unfortunately, I think there are no quick fixes. And, and that's why that, that some, I think some of us might have to have that, that difficult decision and make those sharp trade-offs. And I think the best long-term solution actually is to set up those digital safety nets early on. And it doesn't need to be resource intensive, right? Some of this is about institutions, it's about process, it's about building trust within the community. Uh, it, is, it is not about right, uh, de deploying a huge amount of resource, either in internally or externally funded, and then just plunk it in. Uh, I think a lot of this is that gradual investment of, of time, energy to build up institutions and processes that I know it's difficult. And for, again, certain situations, certain countries, certain kinds of, of situations, it, it just doesn't drop from the sky. Uh, but I can't emphasize that enough because I think that is one of the very few longer term solutions we have out of this. And I know you mentioned quite early on that, you know, 
there's a bit of talk now about so what does this all mean in the future right hopefully we recover in three six nine months time what does that mean for the future of society what does that mean for what's the role of the state uh, what do we have uh, to do in order to set ourselves up to emerge stronger from this entire experience and I think now is actually a useful time to start thinking about that because we can actually leverage on perhaps some of the mind share some of the, the the energy that people have to say let's work together to find solutions and these solutions can actually make us become stronger in the long run as an international community and, and i think a session like this is actually useful so we get to hear different perspectives of how different countries and different institutions have done so thanks calvin and actually a good question to lead on from that is from uh robert lupin who's a law professional here in the uk and he's asking about how countries um, are working together to provide cross-border data flows or, or speed up learning to aid solutions as part of the COVID response. Yeah, you know, have you um, have you seen or are you aware of particularly around making the code available in in Singapore? But um, Oscar, this might be something that you could touch on as well. You know, are there any temporary regulatory frameworks which enable data sharing or could enable data sharing? Have you seen? increased uh, amounts of cooperation on uh, you know, shared approaches to tackling disinformation. Is there a, uh, is, is there a prospect for new forms of collaboration uh, between governments that could be born out of the COVID response? Let me ask that to Calvin first while you're still sort of live as it were, and then I'll come to Oscar. Uh, thanks for that, Jonathan. Uh, I just saw that, that question up uh, on the computer screen as well, and I was just thinking that I think we all need to recognize that different countries have different personal data protection regimes, right? I mean, in the EU, you have GDPR, uh, in, in APEC, we have CBPR, and, and so as much as we would love to, to to share data, uh, we respect that different regimes have have really different regulatory requirements. But I think something again like COVID-19 brings to sharp focus, we might have to start thinking a bit deeper about how we can activate some of these mechanisms early on. It is one thing to say, okay, it's COVID-19, let's scramble, let's take one, two, three weeks, get the technical teams together to figure out <laughs> how to share data it might actually serve us better to actually start thinking about some of these things for such a should such a situation arise unfortunately in, in, in this case I, I don't think many countries have set up any kind of standing cross-border data uh, me mechanisms outside what our current obligations lie uh, for example if we were to reach out to the eu and, and they say look uh, you have to be gdpr compliant uh, that would take two years right to even get that uh, up and, and I think when we talk, uh, the question kind of hints at whether there are any possibilities of either a regulatory sandbox, uh, something that could be even temporarily stood up. But I think that takes time. And, and the, regular, the, the technical teams actually do need some kind of quite clear agreement be, before that kind of temporary uh, regulatory sandbox can even be set up. And uh, I think uh, at this moment, uh, from a government to government perspective, uh, that would be challenging to stand up with, within short notice. I think actually this is where I think companies come in because actually a lot of companies, because actually they have to navigate that cross-border data uh, requirements of the different jurisdictions, 
if they can see that they have a role to play in this and everything is above board, everything is compliant with their respective uh, jurisdictions, that's something that we, we need to look a bit deeper at. Because when it comes to exchanging information, let's also be quite clear, uh, is it really a government-to-government -government effort or actually can it be an industry collaboration as well? And I think there's something to be said about if we probe a bit deeper, uh, then that, that's a potential channel. Uh, and I think uh, at this time, we do, de do, we do need to explore different ways to go about doing it. And actually doing it from a government-to-government -government level may not be the only way. But I'll leave Oscar if he has any further thoughts. Oscar's just disappeared from the screen. I think it, it might be that he needs to recycle his internet. He has the, there he's back, there you go. Um, I, uh, Oscar, is there any, you know, have you seen um, outreach or, or prospects for greater cross-government or intra-government, inter-government collaboration on tackling disinformation? Oh, hold that thought. Um, whilst Oscar's disappeared, and before I can pose that question to him again, I should just point out to everybody in the audience that we do have a second poll running. Um, and that poll will be to ask, uh, or it will appear in a second, to ask what we think is the biggest area of our lives that will change most after we have uh, finally beaten the coronavirus. Uh, there are four options there. It's the same way to vote again. Please do get your vote in and we'll have a quick look at the audience consensus at the end of the session. Um, in Oscar's absence, I'm going to come back to him to ask about cross-government working. But Maureen, there's a question come in uh, specifically for you around whether you see any gender issues emerging um, in terms of the COVID-19 response. And do you see any differences in how different countries are dealing with that? Welcome back, Oscar. I'll come back to you in a second. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, particularly with social cash transfers, it's something we've been uh, speaking a lot about how we can ensure, you know, often it was the female head of household who was receiving the cash transfer. You know, you're giving it to the female if you are, you know, transferring it in person, giving, you know, giving over cash. I think with the switch to mobile money is definitely a concern who the money will go to, particularly if a mobile phone is shared by the household, um, and if the money will then just stay with the male head of household instead. Um, so no answers yet, but definitely something we're trying to think through how we could track or, or measure that has control over those mobile money. Um, I think similarly, uh, the, the pieces that you see written around um, like power dynamics in households and, and uh, you know, in, in, in cases of domestic abuse and how different um, policies might actually exacerbate those problems when people are limited to their homes are issues in developing world contexts as well. Um, again, I think governments are thinking through those. A lot of mobility isn't fully limited here in Zambia, for example. And I think there's a lot of groups that have, um, you know, uh, exemption to full lockdown here. Um, but yeah, I guess no, no easy answers there yet that I've seen emerging, but um, something that we're definitely talking about in front of mind. Um, let me ask, uh, 
a, a kind of question that brings together a few of the different questions we've had from the audience. Um, and actually, well, before I do that, Oscar, whilst you're back, let me come back to you to ask about um, prospects for intergovernment collaboration around tackling disinformation. Great, uh, thanks. And um, just, uh, well, so I'll start off by echoing a, a few things that Calvin said. Um, so, well, so first of all, I'm not a international data flows expert, uh, but I'm not aware of any current plans to sort of change that. There's a reason that I began my sort of little 10 minute presentation by saying that it's really important to us that we make sure the interventions we make here are consistent with our values and principles and wider policies when it comes to digital technologies. And that includes personal data protection. And so things like the uh, GDPR and uh, the rules we have around that are, are really important uh, and have been developed over many years. And so it's important that the steps we take are consistent with those and that we don't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater in, in our approach to getting to grips with, uh, with uh, COVID-19 and the utilization of digital technologies. That said, uh, clearly collaboration across governments and with uh, the sort of uh, technology companies civil society and academia is really important here. And when it comes to disinformation, which is what I can talk about, because uh, I, I know about, um, it is somewhere something where actually things like personal data aren't necessarily so important. Really what we need and the, the information that's most helpful to exchange and understand is the trends, the analysis, and what we're seeing as being effective in countermanding some of those risks. And that doesn't require any sort of uh, personal data transfers. Uh, what it requires is an openness and a willingness to talk about it uh, and to share it with with partners and that's helped by a lot of this information being frankly open source information anyone can look on twitter and do a scrape and come up with a series of narratives and one of the great things that we're seeing and the reasons we are leaning so much into uh, our work with civil society and academics is lots of people are doing this in lots of clever and innovative ways and we want to draw on all those methodologies to get the best possible picture Great. Thanks, Oscar. I'm going to bring together um, a theme that runs through several of the questions, which is around uh, people who might not have access to digital technology um, and thinking about how to reach those kind of hardest to reach elements of the community or most vulnerable groups of the of the community. Um, and I, I'll, I'll, while, while you're talking, Oscar, I'll come to you first on what, if anything, you can do to kind of tackle um, or reach people with public information messaging that can't be reached through digital channels, um, particularly at a time when people can't go to the shops and pick up their newspaper either. Uh, and, and then uh, I'll broaden that out, Calvin, when I come to you um, around reaching people for Trace Together who perhaps might not be um, regular or frequent mobile phone users, for example. Okay, um, thank you. So uh, obviously the answer to this question, what route you want to take, what channels you want to use for dissemination of messaging is going to be specific to the country that you are in and the context. So we very helpfully today had published by our regulator Ofcom, uh, they regulate communications in the UK, uh, a study which looks at where people are getting their news sources from and who they are trusting when it comes to COVID related information. And so that gives us a very helpful way of understanding how individuals across the country are uh, are accessing the relevant information. Um, and we've taken a, an approach which does target multiple different uh, channels. So obviously in the UK, the BBC is a very trusted channel and they have been, uh, they are independent of government, but they have been putting, uh, putting out a lot of uh, helpful information based on authoritative sources. And that is 
sort of the most trusted and the most widely used channel. So that's been really important. But we have used a range of others. So um, in collaboration with the telecoms companies in the UK, uh, a text message was sent to every single uh, user um, who has a has has a mobile device in the country, uh, telling them to stay at home to save lives. That was the core message and remains the core message of HMG: stay at home, save lives. And that's and so that was used because that hit the, the widest possible number of people because almost everyone in the UK has one of those devices and therefore was able to receive that messaging. But it's obviously uh, on multi-platform uh, and will need to continue to be that way to make sure that not just are we hitting the most possible people, but also those groups uh, that might not receive the messaging in an easy way are also reached. And Calvin, how about people who um, might not be the, the most frequent mobile phone users in Singapore? Yeah, I'd be glad to share a bit more about that. Uh, that there's a, a larger national effort in, in Singapore. Uh, we, we call this uh, digital readiness. Uh, it is uh, part of a national movement uh, to make sure all of the, our communities, all of our citizens, uh, including the underreached, including the underprivileged, really fully enjoy the benefits of going digital. Uh, you can imagine again, as I mentioned earlier, if, if government is going digital in how we deliver our services, if companies are going digital in, in not only serving their customers, but also in terms of redesigning their own jobs, uh, all the more I think it's important that all parts of the community are not disadvantaged by this. And, and so there's a larger effort around making sure that we provide broadband access and a mobile device to uh, households, especially households with school-going children. Uh, you can imagine, as our schools are not all going on to home-based learning, uh, a huge concern that we have is, are there possibly school-going children who don't have access to the internet and don't have a device to, to access this? And, and so, we, we've ramped up the efforts and support levels and to make sure that a lot of the support goes through our Ministry of Education and not necessarily through the Ministry of Comms and Information because we think that's the best possible touch point, right? Uh, schools know best uh, if there are certain children that do need additional support and can deliver the device to the child rather than another agency. So I think it's with that kind of mindset that then when we talk about something like Trace Together, when we start talking about general public comms uh, around uh, COVID-19 and giving timely updates, then we have a better sense of who's our target audience. Is our target audience uh, necessarily just say we need targeted uh, communications and targeted ways to get a mobile device to a certain group of people then those two things need to work hand in hand. And that requires a few things, right? That, that requires you to have some kind of access to data, some kind of access to whoever the, the account holder is. Is it the Ministry of Education? Is it the Ministry of Social and Family? Uh, are there ways at which we can access some of that data within government in order to make sure that we actually get that device or that necessary level of support to the people in need? I think in Singapore, it's quite a unique case in, in the sense that public expectations about data sharing are actually quite different. Uh, they expect government agencies to actually share data with one another in some ways. And that's why I think there's some of this that we do need to tap into if we are to truly say that we're trying to reach the underreached. And, and I think that is something that's more specific to the Singapore context that I know is not applicable everywhere else. 
But I think that's important that government is seeing to draw the dot, uh, link the dots in the right way. Once we identify the target audience, we can then reach across different agencies to try to get that right message and that, that right level of support. I think that's really the, the, the underlying uh, principle here. And Calvin, picking up on a question from uh, my colleague Louise, she's asking about how um, you address the problem of faith-based groups who might put faith over science um, and encourage people to kind of crowd in rather than socially distance in doing that. Have you had to consider specific messaging or specific approaches for faith-based groups? Yes, uh, for sure. Actually, uh, what we've done is we've worked with different religious and community leaders uh, to make sure that they understand the reasons behind things like social distancing. Uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, we had to make the unfortunate decision to encourage all churches, mosques, and other places of worship to cease their regular congregations. And, 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 and that actually required the support of all the different religious leaders. And so we had to engage each and every one of them just to make sure they really understand and then they can best contextualize and explain to uh, the rest of their religious communities the, the reasons behind doing so. And, and perhaps some of the faith-based reasons, to be honest, on, on why this is the right thing to do. It is not something that we think we need to overly be, uh, to be overly prescriptive about this. Uh, so long as I think the community leaders understand at a very broad level that this is a, a national effort. And then we leave it to them actually to contextualize the best way they can. Uh, I think that's one way uh, that, that we can reach out to, to perhaps citizens that, that uh, have very strong religious beliefs. And, and actually just to explain to them that a lot of these uh, measures are actually, to be honest, quite consistent with, with that. And that there's, there's no reason to think of it as a trade-off in, in that way. Maureen, is that, is the kind of, uh, in, with the governments that you've worked with, has the consideration of um, segmented messaging to faith-based groups or to other sectors of the population been something that you've seen considered? And I want to also just ask you a question um, that's come through about how you've perceived different rates of uptake in different governments when it comes to tackling disinformation. So is, is, is any of the government that you work with taking it more seriously or less seriously? Um, yeah, definitely on the first point, I think all of the governments that we work with are trying to find ways to partner with um, local leaders, be they faith-based leaders or chiefs from different areas or local headsmen um, to try and share messaging and um, reinforce uh, messaging that the government is sharing more broadly. Um, you know, I think particularly in low resource settings where there's large segments of the population that don't have a mobile phone or don't have regular access to a mobile phone or television or other media outlets, um, working through uh, these people-to-people -people networks are really important. Um, so we've seen many governments um, think about how they're engaging these various local leaders to that end. Um, and then on the second question, around misinformation and, and sort of uh, decreasing the decrease misinformation. Um, I can speak most specifically here in Zambia. I think there's a lot of effort, you know, everywhere in the world, there's a lot of misinformation per Oscar's point. 
Um, and I think here in Zambia, it's uh, hard because there's not, all, all of the media here is state owned. And then, um, so like the formal media, I guess, can be controlled um, related to COVID. At the same time, I think the majority of people receive news from Facebook or WhatsApp groups um, or word of mouth. So through um, stories, it ends up being at some point. And so I think um, a lot of effort is being put into place now to combat that. Um, you know, similarly, there will be SMS messaging. So working to reach the most number of people as possible. There's also radio messaging that's been consistently been rolling out um, to reiterate messages from the Ministry of Health. I think having um, branded materials has been another thing that I've seen. Um, sort of, you know, it's really easy to create a fake document that looks official, but um, you have to look for these specific elements in a document or a specific seal um, to know that it's like, coming actually from the Ministry of Health. So yeah, branding has been an area that I've seen pushed to try and limit misinformation as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question fully. Was there another piece of that? No, that was great, thank you. And I think the, the digital watermarking is something that it has cropped up in different aspects of kind of where I've been consuming my media in terms of understanding the COVID response. Just in terms of questions in the chat room, I just want to remind the audience, if you haven't had a chance already to um, do flick down to the poll and take part in the second poll, because we'll have a look at the at the results of that in just a moment. Um, I'm not ignoring some of the questions that I haven't addressed yet, but I do want to be mindful of the expertise that we have on the panel. Um, so I just uh, I won't jump in on some of them, but perhaps if I can ask uh, a last question to each of you on the panel before we think about starting to wrap up, which is, um, in the experience that you've had so far as part of the COVID response, what would be the one technological capability that you would like to have, um, or you would like government partners to have, Maureen, in your case, that they don't currently have? So, and, and therefore, what would be at the top of the to-do list in order to prepare for next time? Um, and I can see you all looking thoughtful. Um, so I'll, give, I'll, I'll, I'll stall for a couple of seconds to give you a chance to come up with an answer. Maybe we can do uh, whoever's first has something come to mind, jump in first. I mean, Calvin does have the in-house engineering and coding and programming capability in the government of Singapore. So he's already got quite a lot of his wish list, I suspect. But is there anything, you know, in, in, in the work that you've done where you wouldn't have minded just being able to do a little bit more or have slightly different or enhanced capability? No? Okay, I, I think I'll just jump in. <laughs> Since, yeah, go for um, it, go for it. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think it's not so much, I guess, a, a particularly new technological capability as it is a, a, a more broader point that I think, to be honest, governments and institutions can't afford to be behind the technology curve. And, and so as far as I'm aware, uh, I sit at the communi communications and information ministry, right? So 
uh, I think as the nature of communications and to be honest, the business of information flows is going to change over time. I can imagine five, 10, 15 years from now, uh, things like closed messaging apps or social media might, might actually morph to something quite different. And I think just it's important for all of us involved in, in this space, you know, be it because we want to protect people from online harms, is it because we, we just want to make sure that there's safety and security and resilience so that we don't get cyber attacked? Uh, is it because we think that you know, information flows are going to be critical in the next phase of the digital economy and it's going to be the source of jobs and livelihoods for, for many of us? That, that we continue to stay on top of it. So it's not so much a specific technological capability, or, or but I think it's just that general sense that technology will continue to disrupt a lot of the spaces that we're in. And, and so long as we try our best to keep up, and as governments, I know there are certain challenges to that. Uh, we, we might not be seen as, to be as nimble as, as the private sector. Uh, because we have such a broad mandate and we have a public interest mandate that, that, that there are necessary these tensions that we need to navigate internally that, again, a, a private sector entity may not have. But I think that's the danger, right? That we, we tell ourselves, oh, there, there are limits to what we can do. And therefore, we kind of like lose the, the, the overall goal of this, really, is, is to manage the public interest. So that's just my general point, that don't let technology disrupt us, uh, that, that there is a larger goal here. And uh, Maureen, if you had a magic wand, what capability, uh, or your government, the government partners had a magic wand, what capability do you think they'd want first? Yeah, it, you know, at the risk of sounding a little self-promotional on behalf of ID Insight, I think, um, but I'll ground it as to why. I think it would be amazing if all governments had, um, you know, something like our data on demand kind of service. Being able to get accurate, representative, quality information and timeline, be it through us or through uh, any mechanism, I think is so crucial right now. And so many of the governments we're talking to you know, we're trying to figure out how we can do that with them. Um, really have, you know, these established formal feedback loops across the spectrum of topics to know what's actually happening on the ground. Um, you know, the time lag of a normal household survey for like an education program, it would be a couple of years sometimes even to know if a program is working. Um, and so that's too long for something like this pandemic that we're in now where a couple of weeks or a couple of days could be the difference between, um, you know, having a really dire situation versus being able to effectively prevent thing quite um, drastic in a country. But I think, yeah, I guess if I, governments could all have sort of established framework for uh, feedback loops, that would be really incredible. Um. And Oscar, if, 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 if you had the magic wand, what might be happening? Well, so uh, I'll answer this sort of uh, in a couple of ways. But I think so if you look a few years down the line at uh, where we think we might be getting to in terms of the uh, exploitation of data because of the uh, greater extent of data, uh, the quality and integrity of it and interoperability and therefore our ability to exploit it and the ability to pivot quickly to new challenges such as this, I think if I think we can imagine where we might be in five to 10 years on that space. 
and clearly that is somewhere that we would like to be now. Uh, one of the things that I think that is really important in that context, though, is coming back to that discussion earlier, is also having that public policy, that social discussion about how we want that to look so that we've got the right regulatory and legal frameworks in place to allow that to happen. And so I think uh, clearly that is an ongoing public policy discussion, but if I could wave my magic wand and be that five to 10 years further down that line, um, then that would be uh, probably where I'd go. And that's, it's a good point for me to uh, just reference a couple of the questions I haven't had a chance to put to the panel. Um, one of which around um, increased rates of domestic violence during the COVID response, which I think is an incredibly important issue, which we should all be aware of and um, working to try and counteract. But I'm not sure that there's the expertise to address that on the panel at the moment. Um, and the second was a question around how technology might be used to help people organise in terms of responding to COVID, but also thinking a bit politically about what comes in the aftermath of uh, the COVID response. And I think I would just say on that, um, I know here in the UK, and it's a specific example, that there's a lot of local groups set up um, using WhatsApp and other channels to try and uh, organise how to respond. And I think uh, politically, bringing in one last question that we haven't touched on around, is it unhelpful for presidents and world leaders to be actively using disinformation um, in their communications? I will say from the chair that my view is, yes, it absolutely is. Um, and it makes everybody's job a lot harder. Um, but I think the politics of, of where we move forward from this particular moment will be interesting, and I hope they lead us to a much better place. And what we do with technology will be a really big part of those politics, but perhaps it's a discussion for another day. I'm just going to quickly reference the poll results before we wrap up. Um, we asked which area of your lives would be most affected, or we think would be most affected after COVID-19. Uh, Paddy has pointed out that maybe we should have asked where in the world people were answering that question from because we will have a geographic bias in these results. Uh, the reality is we're quite evenly split, but what's come out on top is uh, we think that supply chain resilience or sustainability factors in how people live their lives will be the biggest change. I suspect that might be wishful thinking. Um, the next biggest is uh, working from home and remote working and ways of working in the workplace. Uh, and then 20% of the vote went to uh, the delivery of online public services, so changes in how we see doctors or interact with teachers, and 20% went towards attitudes towards travel and migration. Um, a huge thank you to all of the panelists, uh, Calvin in Singapore, Maureen in Lusaka, Oscar in North London. Um, it's been really great hearing from you. What we wanted to do was give an overview of different aspects of the COVID response so that people thinking these through could learn from them and think about how they put them into practice. I hope we've been able to do that. Uh, thank you to everybody for attending and sending through such thoughtful questions uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.